we're going to be covering uh, tonight was material that I, I think is the single most important material you could possibly cover. Yeah. I, I think everything hangs on this. Um, and so if you're ever going to take notes, this would be a good time to take them because we're going to cover quite a bit of material. And if there's any material that you want to have down really good in your head, uh, it'd be this material. Yeah. Okay, this, this is, this is game-changer stuff. Um, as I'm going through this, if, if you have questions, I'm going to try to leave a little time at the end for some questions and answers and stuff. And it could raise some, some good questions. And I, I love Q&A, so that's... Uh, I love it because I don't know what I'm going to get. Like, when you, when you talk a lot, you know what you're going to say. So I'm, I've heard myself too many times. It's boring. But when I can hear you and uh, respond to questions, then it's like it, it makes it more interesting. It's kind of gives it a... a I don't know, it's almost like a sport. It's like you got to respond in the moment. I, anyways, so think of good questions. Uh, I, I like it very much. Also, um, since Brooksy advertised his stuff, I got to advertise mine. Uh, I have a, a ministry outside of my church, which is Woodland Hills Church, but it's called Renew.org. Renew with a K, with a K R E K N E W, because we're asking people to rethink what they thought they already knew. So renew your mind. Like, know, know it over again. Uh, and and you find, we have a ton of resources on there. Uh, Q&As, all sorts of stuff. It's, it's uh, 10 years, 15 years worth of material kind of all built up. And um, um, see how I respond to all these different kind of questions, whatever. I, there's a library on there for you folks who, I, I put it on all my favorite books on, on various theological and philosophical topics. And so there's like over 3,000 different books listed there. And I, then I rate them, you know, according to how difficult they are. So if you, you know, students, if you get an assignment, you want to, you know, know some good books on a particular topic, I did all that work for you. There you go. You can have it right there. So here's the thing. Um, I, I, I used to be a full-time professor at Bethel University. I still teach one class there a year. But uh, at one point, I was speaking in the chapel. Um, and I get, when I really get into a topic, I can get excited. Uh, I have ADHD, so I can get kind of hyper uh, and, and whatnot. I, get, I, can, I can get worked up. Uh, probably not compared to Pentecostal standards, but I, I get worked up. <laughs> and then after the chapel, a student met me in, uh, at my office. And she says she has a question. And it's kind of a personal question, but it's very important to her. And she promised she wouldn't tell anybody how I answered it, but she just had to know. And the question was, when you get up on stage there and you get all excited, you know, and you're all hyper and, and uh, you're smiling and all that, be honest with me, that's just your shtick, right? Oh, boy. I went, my shtick? What, what do you mean? She goes, well, that's, that's kind of what you do. You're known for that and you get people kind of worked up and, and I, I'm not judging it or anything. I'm just, but that is kind of your shtick, right? I go, if you're implying that, I'm not being myself up there, uh, you're very mistaken. I really find this stuff to be the most exciting stuff in the world. How could you not? Um, now see, I, just on the basis of her question, I already knew a lot about her picture of God. Uh, our, our attitudes, our emotions, our feelings, uh, everything about, everything, our whole relationship with God is totally dependent on your mental conception of God. Really, that's the God you relate to, the God that, that you conceive. And, and so what I know is that anybody, she, she apparently 
doesn't have any kind of excitement over this and can't even conceive of anyone having excitement over it to the point where if someone does have excitement over it, they must be faking it because she would be faking it if she was acting like that. And, and so it tells me that she's got a conception of God. Anyone who saw what she sees in her head would not be very excited about anything. So she's got, at, at, the, at the very least, a boring picture of God. Um, and probably worse, she's got probably a, a very ugly picture of God. So I asked her, what's your picture of God? Now, what she gave me was her theology, or what she knew we were supposed to say the theologically. And I had had her in a class, and she was an exceptionally bright student, so she had all the right answers down. Oh, God is omnipotent, God is omnibenevolent, God is omniscient, you know, blah, blah, blah. God is this, this, that. And I said, okay, that's, that's your theology, but I'm asking what actually goes on in your head when you think about God? What do you see? And she had a really hard time accessing this. Like, like she wasn't aware that, that she, we all think with pictures. We just don't know it. Because when people ask us what we're thinking, we have to give them words. We can't give them what we're actually doing in our head. But what we're actually doing in our head is representing concrete things. If I ask you right now, what's the color of your bed sheet? You don't see a ticket tape of information going across your, 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 the screen of your brain. My bed sheet is yellow. No, you just re-saw, you re-experienced that bed, the bed sheet. That's how we think. We, we represent things in our mind. Uh, it's in our imagination, which is simply our mind's ability to have images. Um, and, and so you, to access the information, what colors your bed spread, you had to go back and to the time where you recently experienced it, and your brain flashes you that, which supplies you with the information. So you tell me it was yellow, but you didn't get that information. That's the information that you just, that's the only you could give me. What you got was the actual experience. And so but we, we, we're, we do it so quickly that we're not often aware of what we're doing. Actually, all of our emotions, this is now a neurological fact, all of our emotions are associated with representations in our head. We have representations that have an emotional component to it. They're part of the representation. That's the meaning of the representation. And, and our mood is affected by what we're doing on autopilot in our head all the time. And you have far, far more control over that than you maybe realize because we're not used to controlling it at all. We just let it kind of go free form. And so our brain's regurgitating stuff that we've heard, that we've learned, that we've experienced, that we saw on television, that whatever. And it's just, your brain's always yapping, always yapping. It never shuts up. Try to shut it up sometime. Lock yourself in the bathroom tonight and, and see how long you can go without any voice going on in your head. I bet you'll get three seconds, and all of a sudden they'll have this, oh, this isn't that hard. How am I doing? This feels silly. It won't shut up. The best way to get it to shut up is to say, talk to me, I'm listening. And then it might be quiet for three or four seconds, if you're really listening hard. But it's a yap machine, and our moods and emotions, unless there's chemical imbalances and things like that, but there's, they're, they're, they're all tied up with what, the, what movie are you running in your head, and you're the one who's running it. And you can change it. You really can change that, that stuff, and it affects your mood. It's like, right now, think of a pink, pink elephant. Okay, to now turn it purple. Look what control you have over the images in your head. Now turn it into a banana. So we're, we're always running movies and a narrative and a soundtrack and all that, and it affects our mood, it affects everything. Um, I found, and I know I'm not alone in this, uh, maybe I'm a little more extreme than most, but I often have soundtracks in my head. Like I, I live my life as though I was in a musical. And, and there's music going on. I'm not usually even aware of it. But I learned about 15 years ago that the, the movie, the, 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 the soundtrack both expresses my mood, but also constitutes it. And by, like, like when I'm in a 
kind of sad mood, there's usually melancholic minor music going on in my head. And I, I didn't, I do it so naturally that I wasn't even aware of it. But if I turn that to some funk, some nice funk horn tower of power stuff and turn the volume way up, man, I'm just like, you know, going to get it on your good credit. You know, and, and it changes your mood. So I'm looking for what's actually going on in this young lady's head. I, I already know. I think I have an idea. But, uh, so I said, no, what do you actually see? What do you, and, and she finally was able to start to get some, something. It took a long time. But what the, fir the first thing she reported seeing when I was actually helping her get on the inside of what she sees and hears and feels and senses inside her head, she saw a hand cocked back. Wow. It was just, just a hand. That's all she got. But it was like a hand ready to slap her. And then as I was able to unpack her picture of God a little bit more, uh, her God looked very much like, not appearance-wise, but in terms of character, very much like her father who she never could please, never could uh, live up to, was always a disappointment, uh, sometimes was phys physically abusive with her, has Hancock back. And he also happened to be uh, the head of the church board and very active in the church and all this kind of stuff. So representing all this God stuff, but this young lady never measured up. Um, just waiting for the time, time when you screw up, and then you're going to get it. Now, who would ever be excited about hanging out with a God whose hands always cocked back? Boy, I want to die and go to heaven. Hang on, I'm so in love with that God. Any, see, that's, a, that, that's the ultimate deflation. It's like, if that's your picture of God, all your feelings of God are wrapped up with what you're actually seeing in your head. Not what you maybe think you're seeing, because maybe you have perfect theology like this young lady did, and you could give me all the omni, the attributes and all that. God's love, love, love. But you can say God is love. In fact, I, this is how it was the first couple of years of my Christian walk. They, we all said God was love, but we had a God that was terrifying. But it's just that you're supposed to say that this is God is loving, because if you don't, then it'll be terrifying towards you and maybe send you to hell. And so let's all play the hangman's game, kind of, or the emperor's new clothes. Let's say this is all loving, but in fact, we all know it's monstrous. And you can tell it's monstrous because we, we, you don't have a, a passion for this. Everything you do is done out of performance, out of you ought, you should, you better do, and there's threats and all that stuff. Because you don't have a loving God to compel you with love. It's just this. And so I, I you know, got this lady to, to see this, that it's not your fault. I don't know where you, where you got this picture, but this does not look at all like Jesus Christ. And, and so let's try to get a representation that does look like Jesus Christ. And I was able to help her go through some things. It turns out, of course, that she had eating disorders, had had it most of her life, uh, performance issues. Um, I mean, just all sorts of shame, all of that. And, um, and this wasn't the cure-all for everything, but by getting her able to experience a beautiful picture of God, begin to you know, change her. Uh, for the first time in her life, she felt something positive towards God. Had never before. It was always done out of awe. And she was a worship leader and she was very active in everything. But it was always done out of this ought and should and gotta do or whatever. And so in worship, she's worshiping this deity. And of course she doesn't understand how other people can be rejoicing and getting excited and, and jumping up and down. They're seeing a different God than she's seeing. Yeah. And see, it's our, 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 our first task of discipleship. It's to take every thought captive to Christ, Paul says. 2 Corinthians 10. And if that includes anything, it includes our pictures of God. To begin to pay attention to what we're actually seeing. It ought to be the case. See, there's very few atheists in the world. There's a lot of people who claim to be atheists. But whenever I talk to them, the God they're rejecting isn't the true God. 
If they were rejecting the true God, they would at least feel bad that he didn't exist. Because <laughs> anyone who knew the true God would wish that this God would exist. But these folks are all rejecting this monster God and, and blaming him for every terrible thing that happens and, and whatnot. So tonight I, I want to uh, share this material that, here's the thing. Most people have like a montage mental picture of God. By that I mean it's like a smorgasbord. They, 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 they grabbed onto a verse here and they grabbed onto a verse here and they heard a song here and heard a sermon over there and somebody said this and the youth pastor told them this. And it just kind of gets all blurred together. So maybe sometimes you feel good about God because you've got a Christ-like picture going on, but other times you've got a genocidal God that we'll talk about tomorrow and, and, and you're terrified. And, and it's, it, it can't help. The, the, the beauty of your relationship with God will never outrun the beauty of your picture of God. It's like the, the beauty of your marriage will never outrun the beauty of the person you're actually married to. You know, it's like if they're an ogre, it's going to hurt the whole marriage. Well, if your picture of God is as a, of an ogre or a tyrant or whatever, how could that not compromise your relationship with him? The, the beauty of your relationship with God will never outrun your mental picture of God. And the beauty of your life will never outrun your mental picture of God because we're always transformed in the image of the God that we're worshiping. It's like a built-in principle, and you find it in Scripture. That's why Paul says that we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and are transformed from one degree of glory to another. Yes. 2 Corinthians 3. It's what you see that determines what you become. That for transformation, Paul doesn't say you ought to do, better do, got to do. If you don't do this, what's going to happen? He rather says, no, the veil in your mind has been lifted, so now you can see what you couldn't see before, and what you see is the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And see, as I behold his beauty, I take on that beauty. When I see his love for me, I become more loving. And his joy over me makes me more joyous, and his peace towards me makes me more peaceful. And this is how he takes everything that's his by nature and gives it to me by grace. Yeah. That's the fruit of the Spirit. He just transforms me. But it's what you see that determines what you become. So this is, this is all important. In fact, there's some recent... Scientific evidence, neurological evidence. This is found, uh, the, the place where it's condensed the best is in a book called The God-Shaped Brain by a, a neurosurgeon named Jennings. And what he shows there, he, he doesn't do this original research. He pulls all this other research that's found in this academic literature. And they now can, they, they've, they've demonstrated this, that when people have a fear-based conception of God, so they're mainly motivated by a move away from strategy, I don't want to go to hell kind of thing. If I don't do this, God's going to get ticked off. Okay, so they're motivated by a fear. So they got an ugly picture of God that's going to crush you and slap you if you don't do the right thing. People who, who have that tend to live more out of their amygdala. Now the amygdala is the reptilian part of your brainstem, which is in charge of your fight or flight reflex. Um, and that's all it's supposed to do. Okay, and it's supposed to be used rare and on occasion because uh, actually the, the chemicals it sends out, like when you get angry and you, or you want to fight or you want to run, whatever, however it is, that exacts a toll on your body. Yeah. Uh, your, your body is sending out these extra chemicals in order to prepare you to have this extra energy to either fight or, or run. Since we're Christians, we always run, all right, because we're not, we're not supposed to fight. But... Um, but what happens if fear is, if you have a, the more important your fear-based picture of God is, the more it's going to activate your amygdala. You're running out of amygdala, and it actually damages your prefrontal lobe cortex, which is the, the part of your brain that does all the abstract reasoning, all your reasoning skills. So having a fear-based conception of God uh, damages your brain. 
Whereas when you compare that with people who have a love-based conception of God, where the love of Christ compels me, like Paul says, and, and you know, the, the, the reasons is because I'm in love with this God, and therefore, therefore I want to be conformed into his image, those folks have a much calmer amygdala and have a, a better operating prefrontal lobe cortex. Over time, and of course there's always exceptions, but generally speaking, the health of your brain will never outrun the beauty of your conception of God. Uh, it, it's, and in fact, to me, this is one good argument for the loving conception of God, even apart from Christ and all that. Unless you want to believe that God hardwired us to be damaged in the process of knowing him accurately. And, and of course, if he's, a, if he's a twisted God, he, I suppose he could do that. Any God that could predestine the majority of people to go to hell before they're ever born would be capable of something that sick. So it comes down to either you're going to believe in a sick God who's running a twisted universe and we get damaged in the process of knowing him, or that's a lie. Yeah. And the true God is the, the loving God uh, that, uh, that heals our brains in the process of knowing him. I'm throwing my hat in the, the latter ring. I don't know about you, but that, that's, that, that, that's where it's got to go. So, so here's the thing. Um, I got, all through the 90s, I was getting this more and more clearly. Uh, and I really came full circle right to the kind of beginning of this century, 2001, 2002. Where I, and this to me has been the most decisive revelation ever. Uh, and it's that, while the whole Bible is inspired, I believe the whole Bible is inspired because uh, so far as I can see, Jesus endorsed the Old Testament and anticipated the New Testament. And if I call him Lord, I'm not allowed to disagree with his theology. Uh, and so, so I, I believe it's all inspired. But... I got to see, this is what I'm going to be sharing tonight, that that doesn't mean that everything has the same authority. Um, that I came to see that Jesus isn't just one revelation of God among others. He's rather the revelation that culminates and supersedes all others. And that according to the New Testament, okay, so according to the Bible itself, we're supposed to Take all our cues about what God is like from Jesus Christ and nowhere else and no one else. Yeah. So be focused on him. And more specifically, and this is a little more recently, I've come to see that it's not just that Christ is the center of everything, but there's the center of Christ. And that has to do with the cross. That the, the, the cross is the place, Jesus always reveals the Father. If you see me, you see the Father. That's always true. And yet Jesus himself John 12 and 13 holds up the cross as the hour in which he'll glorify the Father. But I'm left to lift it up. This is the, the hour in which the Father will be glorified. And, and so there's, the cross is like the center of everything Jesus is about and the central revelation of God. That's what we're going to see here tonight. Now that creates, a, that creates a problem because now what do you do with all this stuff in the Old Testament? And that's what we'll be talking about tomorrow. But whether we can explain that stuff or not, what I want us to do is to lock in with all confidence that God looks exactly like Jesus Christ, and more specifically, like, like Jesus Christ uh, uh, crucified. So here's part of the problem, and then I'll get into the actual verses. So many of us, in fact, it's kind of the Western training, we're taught to read the Bible like this flat book, like a cookbook. You know, in a cookbook, it doesn't matter where anything is. It, you can, you know, file, we've got a cookbook, or it's actually a cook pile now because it's so old, the binding's all done, so it's, it's cook sheets. But, but, but you know, Shelly will take out a recipe and then just kind of, as long as it goes in kind of the general category of pastas, whatever, it doesn't matter. Uh, and, and she sometimes has, stuff will fall out and she'll just pick up a recipe because the meaning of the recipe doesn't change whether it's in the front or the back or the middle or on the floor. But see, the Bible's not like that. 
know a lot of people treat it like that. Just pull out a verse. There it is. God said it. I believe it. That settles it for me. Um, the Bible's a story. Yeah. It tells a story. It's an unfolding revelation. And it has a direction to it. And see, in stories, as opposed to a cookbook, where something is can make a tremendous amount of difference. Things develop. Especially... Like a detective story. Have you ever read Sherlock Holmes or any of that? You know, you have all this evidence that's kind of planted, but you don't know what it means. It doesn't quite make any sense until, bam, at the end, he gets the idea and he tells the story about how the shoe got left in the corner and that's why the window's broken and that's why the, there's a creak in the floor over there and a drop of blood over there. And he, and he connects the dots. And now it's, oh, now I get it. Yeah. And sometimes in, in stories, the, the endings changes everything. Like, is anyone here, it's kind of old now, but uh, the, the movie The Sixth Sense? Yeah. Or how about The Book of Eli? Yes. Okay, so, okay, so spoiler alert. <laughs> if you haven't seen those, I'm going to spoil it right now. So plug your ear and go, la, 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 if you don't want to hear it. The last minute of both those shows completely changes the meaning of the entire show. And you're left going, what? No, no way. No way. Uh, and then you have to go back and watch the whole show again at least one more time. Like, and you can see now how all that explains everything that you didn't even really notice beforehand. Well, the Bible is that kind of a story. It all leads up to Jesus Christ. And when Jesus shows up, man, he, he changes everything. He, he, he's not the Messiah that anyone expected. And yet he fits perfectly everything. And he reframes everything. And so you, you got to like, what? Uh, you got to go back and they'll read stuff in the light of what you know about God and Jesus. But the first step and the most foundational step is to really know and be confident that God looks as beautiful as he is in Jesus Christ. We're going to see tomorrow that unless you have that anchor, unless you have that anchor, if there's any suspicion that God could be genocidal or whatever, well, then all you'll find in the Bible is these, a genocidal God, a violent God, whatever. But if you really trust, fully trust, completely trust that God looks like Jesus Christ crucified, you're empowered to see something that you otherwise wouldn't see. And that's what we'll be talking about tomorrow. Um, and, and you show how, these, how all scripture points to, to Jesus Christ. So this is on, on, on the, the, the centrality of Christ, and then I'm going to go with the centrality of the cross. And by the way, one final prelim. Um, in the Crucifixion of Warrior God, I spend over 200 pages on this material. And in Cross Vision, it's like 70 pages. Cross Vision is the popular version of Crucifixion of the Warrior God. And it's all about trying to reinterpret Old Testament violent portraits of God in light of the cross and how the cross changes everything. Um, so this is going to be very, very condensed. So take notes, take them fast, and we're going to cover uh, uh, at least the highlight of this material. But this is just the tip of the iceberg. Consider this an infomercial for the book. <laughs> Go out and get the book. All right. Because the bottom line is always the bottom line. Okay. Uh, let's start with Hebrews. Uh, according to the New Testament, the Son is exactly what God is like. Now, listen to this passage. Uh, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at, very, at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, and last days simply means last epic. We're in the last days right now. He has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. What a, what a passage. Okay, so there's several aspects of this. He says that in the past, God spoke through the prophets at many times and in various ways. Polymeros. Uh, the Phillips translation translates this as, as they the got glimpses of the truth. 
The, the main concept there is that that was a mediated revelation. That, that was mediated. But uh, Jesus, he says, going on to, to be here, he is the heir of all things, through whom also he made the, the universe. He embodies God's wisdom and purpose for all things. All things will be consummated and harmonized under him. So he's the center of everything. Everything ultimately in the end will point to him. I love what it says in Ephesians 1, that all things will be summed up under his headship, under one head. He's this weird Greek word, anakaphaleo. Uh, but it's the idea of Jesus is going to somehow redeem the past. Everything, past, present, and future, will be redeemed in him. Somehow he's going to bring good out of every evil. And, and he's putting together this beautiful tapestry, which will be the kingdom of God. And, and we'll see how God has been victorious and how he's been working in all circumstances in our life. Even in the nightmares, even in the pain, even the suffering. He didn't cause any of that. He's sad and, and hard that, that it happens. But he's so smart, he anticipates all of it and has a plan in place in case it happens to bring good out of evil and redeem it. And, 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 and Christ is the center of that. I love what Blaise Pascal has said. He says, Jesus Christ is the object of all things, the center towards which all things tend. And we're going to see that that holds as true of the Bible as it does for everything else. That, that itself tells you if all things point to Jesus, when well, certainly the Bible points to Jesus. But we're going to see that that's confirmed over and over and over again. And so he says, in contrast to the glimpses of truth that they had in the past, God spoken to us by his own son. And when he says son in the book of Hebrews, that's just saying God in person. The author of Hebrews, right in Hebrews chapter 1, goes on to call the Son the Creator, calls Him Lord. and all, So it's, it, the Son of God isn't something less than God or other than God. It's simply God in the form of the Son. So in the past, God spoke through the mediums of prophets in various ways and, and in various degrees, and they got glimpses of truth. But now God has come in person, yes. the author's saying, the contrast. He's come in His own person. And then he says, this person, Jesus Christ, is the radiance of God's glory. Now think about that. What's the difference between radiance and glory? If, you know, if, if I say, you know, man, Pastor, you've you got the radiance of God on you, or the glory of God on you. What's the difference between those two things? There's not much, is there? It's like the author is saying, Jesus is the shininess of God's shininess. He's, he's the radiance of God's glory. He, he's, he's what it looks like when God displays his glory. It looks like Jesus Christ. Exactly like Jesus Christ. He's the exact representation. So in the past, they got approximations. They got glimpses of the truth. You know, they, they, it, some stuff got through to them. But it was nothing like now what we have in, instead of approximations, we know exactly what God is like. He's the exact representation of his, of, of, of his character, it says. And then he says he's the exact reflection of his essence. And he uses this Greek word, hypostasis. It means substance or heart. It's, what the author is saying is, God looks like Jesus all the way down. <laughs> down to the core of his being, his heart of hearts. There's no part of, of God that is not Christ-like. He's, he's Christ-like all the way down. And this is what he comes to reveal uh, in, in the Son. So yeah, they, they, they had glimpses of truth. But insofar as they were seeing truth, they were seeing the same thing we're seeing. It's just that they had blockages there. And we'll talk about those uh, tomorrow morning. Um, they weren't seeing a different revelation. They were seeing the same revelation we're seeing, but they had clouds. You know, if, if you go outside and you're getting glimpses of the sun, it's a pretty cloudy day. You're seeing mostly clouds. Now, when you see the sun, it's the same sun that everyone else sees. 
when there's no clouds, it's just that you are, it's a cloudy day, so it's blocking the sun. They had clouds, and we'll talk about what those clouds were. Uh, they got glimpses, but now we have got the full truth in the person of Jesus Christ, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And the last thing you ever want to be doing is trading a shadow or a, a, a real revelation for a shadowy one. You know, it, it, it's like, that, that's just a, a bad deal. Uh, if you've got the, the full revelation, then don't go back to a cloudy day and grab onto their partial glimpses. You know, we, there's a lot, we learn from those partial glimpses, but they're always partial glimpses. And so our job is to keep our eyes on the sun. It's uh, he's the full revelation of what God is really like. The last thing you should do, right, is, is put any revelation alongside of him that could qualify or compromise what we learn about God in him. It's like, you know, Paul and the author of Hebrews both at times uh, refer to the Old Testament or the laws of the Old Testament as a shadow. That's shadow stuff. But we have the reality. Yeah. Well, look, at, once you know a person in reality, has this ever happened in the history of the universe where someone learns something about a person from their shadow that they didn't learn from their reality? No, the shadow is a bare outline of what you're about, right? So I can tell a few things, my Carl, from looking at your shadow. But once I meet the real guy... Uh, the shadow won't tell me anything new. It, it's, a, it's just there to point me to him. It's like if I didn't know where he was, I could follow his shadow and then lead me right to the reality. Bam. Now, I wouldn't be going to check your shadow for more information about you because I got you and your whole three-dimensional reality there. All the stuff that the shadow can't give. Shadow can't give personality. Shadow can't give the good looks. Can't give that cool beard. Can't give that man that all... Can't capture the essence of who you are. So what we have there is a shadow. It's like Christ cast a shadow back in time. And, and that was to lead them to Christ. Uh, but now that we have the reality, um, we shouldn't be getting tripped up by uh, the, uh, anything else we find in the shadow stuff leading up to it. Okay, secondly, Jesus tells us he's got an authority that's greater uh, than, than, than uh, uh, any previous author or, or prophet. So my authority is, he says, I have a testimony that's weightier than that of John, John 5.53. My testimony is weightier than that of John the Baptist. Now, what's interesting is that Jesus in Matthew 11 says that there's not been any prophet leading up to John as great as John. He's the greatest of all the prophets that preceded me. But Jesus says, I have an authority that's greater than that of John. Do the math. Jesus' authority is greater, weightier than what you find in any of the writings coming up. Because if he was the best and Jesus outdoes him, then Jesus outdoes everything that, that, that preceded him. Yeah, in, in Matthew 11, we find this. Uh, Jesus says, I love this statement. All things have been committed to me by my Father. And then he says this. No one knows the Son except the Father. Think about that. And no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. No one knows the Father except the Son. And then those who get the revelation of God through the Son. Now, I have to believe that there's some hyperbole here. Because, I mean, Semitic language is full of hyperbole. They say things in, in extreme forms just as a way of emphasizing them. In fact, if you go to Semitic cultures or Mediterranean cultures now, you'll find the same thing. You go to bargain with them and your first offer is the stupidest most ridiculous offer ever made to a human being ever. You remember, you mock my mother's grave. You know, they're very, they're, they're, they're and all they're saying is, no, try again. You know, but they state in things in extreme terms. And I think it's hyperbole because Jesus himself knows that the folks in the Old Testament knew some things. They got some things right. 
But what he's saying is that compared to the revelation of God that you have in Jesus, it's as though no one else has ever known anything. The revelation you have in Christ is so much greater than what anyone else has seen that it's as though they knew nothing. They knew a shadow. But now in Christ, you know the reality. No one knows the Father except the Son. So again, the last thing we want to do is to take the revelation that we have in the Son and put them next to, compare them to, let them be qualified by people that Jesus himself says didn't know anything. (laughs) You've got it all here, uh, so don't be trying to reek out more stuff uh, out of them. Uh, In John 1 again, uh, it it says this. Jesus says, For the law was given through Moses. Brexy touched on this marvelously earlier today. Uh, The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, whom, who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father, or the bosom of the Father, some translations have it, he has made him known. He has exegized him. He's flushed him out. The thing that's interesting about John is, is he's a master of double entendre. Um, uh, throughout his gospel, he'll use terms in, in two different ways, meaning both, but it's, it's, it's kind of got a little tongue-in-cheek, uh, you know, that I've come to bring light, and then he heals the guy. And, and there's all sorts of plays there. One of the things that he does a double entendre with is the concept of seeing. You find this seven or eight times in his gospel, where seeing both can mean a physical seeing, but also means seeing a truth. Like, and we use the term that way ourselves. Oh, oh I see what you're saying. But we don't really see what they're saying. We heard what they're saying, but we understand it. And so it's a, it's a way of saying. So he uses this both as to mean a physical seeing, because God is spirit. No one's ever seen God as spirit before. But even more importantly, it's, it's, it's a cognitive thing. And so when he says no one's ever seen God, he's saying the same thing that Jesus said when Jesus said no one ever has ever known God. God was this, this unknown, relatively unknown thing. Of course, they got glimpses of truth. But compared to what we find in the sun, it's as though no one had ever known God at all. And you can see that by the way he sets up the, 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 the comparison. That, that no one's ever seen God, but the only uh, begotten God has made him known. So clearly he's talking about a cognitive seeing here. And John's going so far as to say that compared to what we find in Jesus Christ, it's as though no one prior to Christ had ever even known God. It's somewhat hyperbolic, but, but the, it's important to grasp the emphasis here. Uh, that Jesus, that's why Jesus goes on to say, the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. He's saying that there's something untrue about what they had in the past. They had some clouds there. They had some clouds there. And, and, and so there's something untrue about that. And you can see that with the law. Like, if you read the Old Testament, those folks, clearly some of them at least, really thought the law was the way to get right with God. This is going to get us right with God. Well, in light of what happens with Jesus, this is the sixth sense. This is the book of Eli. Everything gets reframed. And now Paul looks back, and, and he sees something very different. Now, that law wasn't given to us as sort of like God's plan A, and now he's on to plan B, uh, as though you could get right by obeying the law. The, the law, in fact, was, was given to increase our sin, to expose our sin, to show us our desperate need for a Savior. It, it was a negative object lesson. Which means that all those portraits of God delighting in the law and giving the law were a negative object lesson. Think about this. But the truth came when the grace came. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Uh, and so this is why the author of, of Hebrews, in, in like Hebrews 8, he, he says that, that what, is, uh, what is old and what is shadow is passing away and is now obsolete. Right. 
It's obsolete because the realities come. And so the, you, you still need that shadow to set a context for things. You can't understand Jesus' ministry without the Old Testament and all that. But we got to know who's got more authority. We got to know who to trust uh, when, when it comes to basing our, 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 forming our picture of God. So I like what um, Greg Berg says here. He says, Jesus does not, commenting on this passage here, he says, Jesus did not have a relative superiority, but an absolute superiority to previous revelations. Hence, the Son's revelation cannot have any rivals. Yes. Amen. No rivals. Uh, this isn't one revelation among other revelations. This is the revelation that culminates and supersedes all others. So Jesus says in, in, in Matthew 5, I love this one. And this just shows that his authority trumps that of the Old Testament. He says, you have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. And you find that command three times in the Old Testament. And the typical explanation is that, oh, there the Lord was just limiting how much you could take but not requiring you to take any. Well, go back and read the three commands, and you'll find that in two of them, it's in, they, they command it. You must take an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Okay, so it's commanded. Jesus comes along and says, well, yeah, you've heard that, but I'm telling you something very, very different. He says, I tell you, do not resist an evildoer. And by the way, the word resist there, anthostamy, it doesn't mean do nothing, but it simply means you can't respond in kind. To, to resist is to push back. A push with a push, hit with a hit, gunshot with a gunshot. Jesus says, no, that's been going on throughout history. We don't need more of that, that cycle of violence. Uh, let's try a new approach. Uh, don't respond in kind. Now, you can get in the way of it. You can do all sorts of things, but you're not allowed to respond in kind uh, with, with aggression. Don't, don't, don't respond with a push with a push. You can hug them, love them to death, but you can't, you, you, you can't respond. And he says, your enemies... And what's radical about this is that any Jewish person in first century Palestine hears the word enemy, and the first thing they think of are the Romans. And the Romans were the ones who were, of course, running the whole empire. They're, they were occupying their land, and they were running things in a brutal, brutal fashion. They were terrorists. They, they, they ruled by terror. So like, if anyone messed with them, any town or any group, they would just march into that town and randomly gather up a bunch of people and crucify them on the hill. Innocent, guilt did matter. You just round them up, and, and then you left them there for three days, and it's, it's their way of saying, you don't want to mess with us. If you mess with us, this is what happens. That, by the way, is... Uh, I'm, 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 the views represented by this guest are not necessarily those of Impact Church. <laughs> but, you know, okay, I'm just going to throw this out there and then let it mess with some people's heads, maybe. Uh, but, you know, when Jesus says that one will be taken and one will be left behind... I, I have, you know, I, when I was first a Christian, that was the rapture verse, right? That's a, the one's going to be taken. They're the lucky ones. One left behind is, life was filled with guns and war, and everyone got trampled on the floor. I wish we'd all been ready. There's no time to change your mind. The sun has come too bad, sucker. And I think of some of the songs we used to sing back then, and they were all, like, so unloving. Like, like uh, oh, don't you weep for me when I'm gone, because I won't have to leave here alone. But when I hear that last trumpet sound, my feet won't stay on the ground. I'm going to rise with a shout. I'm going to fly. I'm going to meet with the Lord in the sky. Heaven is near, so I can't stay here. Goodbye, world, goodbye. <laughs> and these poor suckers are all going to be, you know, the beast is going to chop their head off. And we're, like, we're like mocking them. I, I remember, I, I, we used to just get in, and I remember one time thinking, gosh, I'm rejoicing here, and we're talking about all of our loved ones going to be left behind and get the mark of the beast and devil and all that stuff. Shouldn't we be crying? 
anyways, if you look at the original passage, she says, one will be taken, so she's talking about the wars and tribulation, all that, one will be taken, one will be left behind. Next verse, in the, in, it's in Matthew or Luke, he says, where the vultures circle, there lie the bodies. Now, what he's getting at is this, that when the Romans would come into town and one would be taken, I mean, that's not the fortunate one. That's the unfortunate one. And then when they crucify him up on the hill, they would put him in mass graves. That's part of the insult, uh, not give him a proper burial. And so for Jews, this was sacrilegious. They wanted to bury their loved ones, so they had to try to find them. And what they'd always look for are the vultures, because that's where the bodies are. And the reason bodies are. So uh, whether you believe in the rapture thing or not, uh, fine, but don't use that verse. Because uh, that verse really doesn't, he's not talking about going up in the air. He's talking about, so they ruled with terror. And everybody, every, all the Jews hated the Romans. They had relatives who were killed by these Romans. Their situation was, it's like, if, imagine if, if Al-Qaeda or one of those groups managed to take over Canada. So the terrorists that everyone's fighting, they've already won. And we're under Sri law. And they're doing unjust things to us. And Jesus comes around and says, love your enemies. Love your enemies. See, that, that, that gives it teeth. And this is the kind of thing that might get you crucified. If you're living under the reign of terror, and someone comes along, and everybody, of course, is talking about how do we kill these guys, get them off, and blah, 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 blah. And there were a lot of zealots back in Jesus' day who had that plan. But Jesus says, love your enemies. And it's like, you've got to be kidding. Love your enemies. And they'll say, no thanks. I'd rather have that eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. We, 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 we much more prefer that. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Yeah. <laughs> this is, I remember when I, I, I first saw this. It's funny how, you know, the Bible is a Rorschach test. Uh, what you find in it will say a lot about your heart and about what you're looking for and what you're not looking for. And I, I remember, I probably read that 150 times when all of a sudden I read it and I got it. I, I had never noticed that. That you may be children. This, he sets this up as the criteria for determining whether or not you're a child of God. And the reason is because this is what God's like. So he, he says, you know, the father, he causes his son to shine on the just and the unjust and the rain to fall on the righteous and the wicked. Love like that. That's how he loves. Um, that, that means he loves indiscriminately. Right. He loves without any consideration of merit. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the, the son... S-O-N, or S-U-N, doesn't pick and choose who it's going to get warm or light up. It just does what it does. And the rain doesn't pick and choose who it's going to get wet. It just does what it does. So also, God doesn't pick and choose who he loves. He just does what he does. He is love. Yeah. And, 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 and we'll show that we are children of the Father when we manifest that same character. When we put on, you know, you can tell the son on the basis of the, the, the similarities with the parent. Well, when we resemble God in this respect, we're putting on display to the world that, in fact, we're children of Abba Father. And we have a capacity to love, uh, to love others more than loving our own life. We have a capacity to, to lay down our life. We have a capacity to follow his example, which he tells us to always do, to take up our cross and follow him. But here Jesus is saying that that Old Testament law... Which is, which is no minor thing. This is what's called the, the lex telionis. It, it's the law of just retaliation. And it's the foundation for all um, punitive laws in the Old Testament dealing with interpersonal relationship. And it's a foundation of, of justice in most uh, governmental systems. You know, equal retribution. You, you owe this much to society. Jesus says, done with that. Yeah. 
But now you are to not resist the evildoer. You're to love and bless them. And, and that's how you show that you're children of the Father. So to obey Jesus, you've got to disobey laws of the Old Testament. Yeah. You've got to. It, the other way of putting it is if you obey those laws of the Old Testament, you're disobeying Jesus. So clearly, some things, this is a story. You know, see, if this was a cookbook, this would be a major problem. We've got a contradiction here. Because God says here to take an eye for an eye, truth for truth. But now Jesus is saying, don't do that. What are we going to do? You know, crisis, constitutional crisis. But it's not if you understand a story, because stories develop. And things change, and people change. And God's ability to relate to people changes. And so what was appropriate back then is not appropriate now. And we are now. We're in the last days. We're in the sun. So, so here again, it's going against the precedent of Jesus to give something in the Old Testament the same authority that he has. Right. Because he himself trumps that authority right. over and over again. And then uh, we, we, we find that Jesus is the one complete revelation of God. Have you ever noticed the importance of the singular definite articles in the New Testament? Uh, Jesus is, is said to be the way and the truth and the life. The singular implies singularity. There's only one. He's not one of the lights, one of the truths, one of the ways. No, he's the truth, the way. No one goes to the Father except through him. Uh, it, it's because the only way you know the Father is, 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 is through him. Um, and then he says uh, to his disciples, uh, uh, James and John came and said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Talking about these towns in Samaria that rejected the gospel. And, and these guys were ticked off. How dare they? They didn't like Samaritans anyways. They hated Samaritans. Probably didn't even want to go where they were out of the mission field, but Jesus made them. So they're in Samaria, and they get rejected. And so John James come back, and they're like, can we call down fire and incinerate these people? <laughs> Which maybe, but see, here's the thing. They had good precedent for asking that question. Because in that same location in Samaria, that was when Elijah uh, had met with the leaders of King, what's his name? A has Abilidad, blah, 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 blah. Um, and, and, and he has them incinerated. There's three groups of 50 guys who come to see him because the king is dying and the king wants the last meeting with Elijah. Or is it Elisha? I always get those two mixed up. Elijah, okay. And, and, and so he, fire comes down and incinerates them. And it was about to happen on the third group. The, the captain pleads, he says, please uh, uh, spare our life or respect our lives because you weren't respecting them before. And, and we, we don't mean to, uh, you know, don't kill us. We don't, we're not trying to threaten you. And then the angel of the Lord shows up and tells Elijah, don't, because he's going to have a third fire come down. He says, don't do it. I, I want you to go with the king and, and get this message. Uh, he's not going to do you any harm. Which tells you that Elijah was not in God's will at that point. God shows up and says, what are you killing people for? And actually, the reason he's killing people is because he's always, you go back and read Kings, and he's always, he's always afraid of authorities, and God's always having to prove to him, you don't need to be afraid of authorities. He just had that big thing on Mark Carmel, when he, you know, the, the battle with the priests of Baal, calling on fire and all that stuff. And it was to, to show him that you don't need to be fearing Jezebel and these other, you know, powerful people. Clearly, he has not learned that lesson because he's, he's talking out of fear. And out of fear, he uses the supernatural power that God's given him in ways that are not consistent with what God intended him to use that. When God gives you authority, it's, you still have free will and can mis misuse it. In fact, I mean, you can find this in the book of Corinth. These people, they have the Holy Spirit. Paul never questions that, that their gifts of the Spirit aren't genuine gifts, but they're not using it right. 
They're speaking all at the same time, and it's all mayhem and crazy. So he says, okay, look, we got to put some rules around this. And, and yeah, it's genuine, but just because it's genuine doesn't mean that you're doing it the right way. Or Moses, you know, he's got that supernatural staff in his hand. But the thing works even when he uses it in an ungodly way. He smacks that rock and water comes out. Uh, he still got the miracle, and yet God rebukes him for that because he, he's using it out of line. Just because someone in the Bible uses supernatural authority does not mean that they're doing it according to God's will. I think people assume that, but ancient people, I don't think, would assume that. They saw divine power as something that, it's like free will. It's given to you, and now it's up to you. That's why it means something when, when three times in John, it said the Father had put all things under his authority. The Father's saying, I give you this authority, and now it's under your will. Which is why he, he could have, like, at the end of his life, he says, when Peter uses that sword, and he rebukes him for it, which clearly shows you that when Jesus said, go out and get a sword, he wasn't actually saying to use it. He, says, he tells us, it's, in Luke 22, it's so that the Son of Man would be counted among the transgressors. That's the prophecy that needs to be fulfilled. And you can't hardly look like a transgressor if you don't have a sword. And so Jesus says, go out and sell what you have and buy two swords. And they said, okay, we got two. And he goes, well, that's enough. But if he actually wanted them to use it, two would never be enough. Uh, you're going to need a lot more than that to find off uh, this army, if that's what you're supposed to do. But the greatest proof is that when, when Peter uses it, he rebukes them. And he says, don't you know, I could call legions of angels if I wanted to to defend me. Uh, and they do it. I mean, that's, the assumption is that they would do that. But he would have been out of the Father's will if he would have done that. And Jesus always used his authority in line with the Father's will. So they're really saying, can we be like the hero in the Old Testament? You know, that great Elijah guy, man, he got to incinerate his enemies. How come we can't do it to ours? And Jesus rebukes them. And he says, you don't know what you're asking. In fact, in some of the earliest manuscripts, it says, you don't know what spirit you are of. You're coming from this from a different spirit, which means, now think about this. Elijah, he was great by old standards, but he wouldn't have been included in the disciples of Jesus. Uh, he, he did not have this love for enemy. He didn't have that mark of, of uh, a, a child of God. He didn't love indiscriminately. Uh, Jesus rebuked that kind of behavior. So that in the story, you got to pay attention to where things are. You know, he, he's held up as a hero in the Old Testament, but not in the New Testament, not by Jesus' standards. Uh, and so the last thing we should be doing is basing our model of behavior on f f things we find in the Old Testament. And because it was justified then or allowed then, that we think it's allowed now. Which I think is a good time to put in this little commercial. You know, for the first three centuries of the church, um, the theologians were really wrestling with these violent depictions of God in the Old Testament. I mean, you got some, you got some really lurid pictures of God there. Slaughter them all, everything that breathes, show no mercy, man, woman, child, infant, even the animals, all got to go. But spare the trees, they've done nothing wrong. I'm not kidding you, that's in Deuteronomy 22 which you think would apply to babies before it applied to trees, but, uh, you know, we'll, we'll talk about that later. But you got these, you know, terrible So they were wrestling with it, and they were asking the question. None of them took the, surf, the surface meaning of these. They, all, they regarded the whole Bible to be inspired, but none of them took the surface meaning of these portraits to be the meaning it was supposed to have for them. And they were wrestling with, like, how does this point to Jesus? How is this consistent with Jesus, but how does it even point to Jesus? Because all Scripture is supposed to point to Jesus. And so they're wrestling with that. And they're using allegory and some other interpretive techniques to try to make this Bible all about Jesus, to disclose how it's all about Jesus. Then, in the 4th century, the church inherits all this political power from Constantine and gets invited to the table to help run the Roman Empire. And the church, sadly, thinks, oh, this is a blessing. It's the same temptation. J Jesus was given this temptation by the devil. I can give you all the authority of the kingdoms of the world, but Jesus said, no thanks, I'm going to get them the hard way. 
by dying for it. But three centuries later, the church says, yeah, we'll take it. And so they, they, they get in bed with Caesar and, and start running the Roman Empire. The thing is, you can't run the Roman Empire if you're turning the other cheek and not resisting the evildoer and loving your enemies and all that stuff. You've got to use the sword. You know, you, you got, the laws have got to have teeth or they're not laws at all. So you've got to punish wrongdoers inside your borders and, and, and stay off enemies outside your borders. And when there's land that you want conquered, it's to the advantage of the kingdom to conquer it. Well, you've got to go out and kill to get that. So the church comes to terms with the sword. Trouble is, it's really hard to justify any of that in the ministry of Jesus. You've got to go through some, people are willing to do it, but they do go through incredible gymnastics to try to, to, try to reconcile uh, their violence with, in the ministry of Jesus. So what you do is you've got all this nice violent stuff in the Old Testament. Look at all this, conquering people and killing people and slaughtering. Okay, well, if it was good enough for them, it's good enough for us. So you just jump over Jesus, which Christians have been doing throughout history. If you can't find it and just fight the mystery of Jesus, just jump over Jesus, grab something in the Old Testament, and pull it out and claim that it's for today. It's a very selective reading of things. Uh, whatever's been to the advantage of the church. And so now, it's, you know, if you're going to ask people to go out and, and kill, professing Christians to go out and kill and be willing to be killed, it really helps if you have some God motivation for it. So they have the preachers just start talking about all these battles and how Joshua went this and David did this and whatever. And now these folks go out and repeat what they did in the Old Testament, even though it flatly contradicts what Jesus tells us to do. And see, that's when the violent portraits of God in the Old Testament stopped being a problem that people wrestled with and started becoming advantageous. You want those there. And the main role that those violent portraits of God have played throughout history up to this present day is to incite and justify violence. Yeah. It, 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 which is why the church has always been willing to interpret, I mean, to go to incredible lengths to reinterpret passages to make it consistent with their theology um, and, and either to conform to their, their, their model of God and things like that. But when it came to the violent portraits of God, those had to be taken at face value. Why? Well, because we're not just doing exegesis here. We're running an empire. We're, we're using the Bible as a manual uh, to help us, you know, get what we want. Uh, same way the world's always gotten what it wants. And this is when the church decided, we had the church militant and triumphant. The church that was going to conquer the world for Jesus, which didn't work very well at all. And thankfully, that model of Christianity, it's called Christendom, is now dying. Uh, and that's a good thing because it's clear in the grass and some beautiful new wines being poured out and wineskins are being developed. And there is a movement going on around the globe of people who are getting this revelation. And it's freaking beautiful. I just love it. It's just, it's, it's exciting. It's, we're, we're, we're living at an exciting time, folks. Uh, all over the planet. It's just, it's just, it's just great. Okay. So he's the, one, he's the one and complete revelation of God. So Jesus is the eternal word of God. John 1.1. 1 -1. He's not one among many. Wait, oh, oh, I skipped one. Sorry about that. Uh, let's go back to, yes, uh, the next one would be Luke 9, 28 through 36. Here's just a part of this. This is the Mount of Transfiguration. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. What's going on there? Well, there's a lot of things going on, but one of the things that's going on is this. You know, Moses and uh, Elijah, or was it Elisha? Moses and Elijah show up. Who's on there? Elijah. Okay. I always get those mixed up. Um, and, and they're all three there. And, and then this is where Peter, he wants to make three tabernacles. It's like, okay, 
Let's freeze this. <laughs> let, let's just live here on this mountaintop and, you know, do our bidding from here. We, we got everyone together. Let's just do it. And Jesus says, no, it's, it's not going to go like that. Because then this cloud descends on them. And, and he, they hear this voice about, this is my beloved son. And then when the cloud lifts, those two are gone. And Jesus alone is here, and they get the instruction, listen to him. Now, part of what's going on here is that uh, some scholars are arguing that Moses represents the law and Elijah the prophets. And, and, and what this revelation is saying is that, okay, there was a time when people listened to them, but now you listen to this one. Okay, those two now are in the past. Let them be past. The one to listen to now, take your marching orders from Jesus Christ, not from Moses and not from, from uh, Elijah. Okay, then, then we find out, I, this is the part I had jumped ahead of before. Jesus is the one complete revelation of God. Here's where the singulars come in, into play. He is the way, the truth. Can you put the scripture up there? He's the, the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. In the early church, they referred to Jesus as the face of the Father. Um, it's like... I'm more than my face, but if you're going to know me, you've got to know me through my face or through my whole body. Uh, there's no other way to know me other than through my body. So I, I'm manifested to you in my body. Jesus is the face of the Father. He's what the Father looks like on display. He is the Word of God, and he's not one of words among many. He's, he, there's only one word. And so far as anyone's got a true revelation of God, it's always been the same word. They just had a lot of other stuff going on as well. And then we read that he's the eternal Word of God, there's only one. He's the light of God. There's only one. All, all the wisdom of God is found in him. In Colossians 2, all the treasures of God's wisdom, Paul says, are found in him. Well, if all the treasures of God's wisdom are found in him, then there's nowhere else you need to look to find out any wisdom about God. It's all in him. Going to any other source is only going to give you less than what you're getting when you have Christ. All the wisdom is found in him. The whole kitten caboodle. And it says, in Christ, oh, I love this passage, Colossians 2.9. In Christ, all, the word is pan, the fullness, pleroma, of the deity, theotis, lives in bodily form. Paul here is like stretching language to try to out-superlative himself. He's got three superlatives here. All, not some, not an aspect, not a partial, all, of the, 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 the uh, fullness, pleroma, not, 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 not graded out, not diluted, not, no, all of the fullness of theotes. It's a word for divinity. It's what makes God, God. Everything that makes God, God is found in bodily form in Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. Yes. All the fullness of what makes God, God. So there's nothing that you're going to find out about God that's accurate that isn't found in Jesus Christ. It's all there, all the fullness of the deity. And what, what, what's, what's behind this is that Paul, most scholars agree that his opponents here are these uh, quasi-Gnostics. Gnosticism was a kind of a form of religion in the ancient world that was um, kind of like our New Age movement. They're very eclectic and they took a little of this and a little of that and blended it all together. And, and, and so they have Jesus doing some stuff, but he's part of a bigger system. And one of the things that the Gnostics held was that there, the one God is kind of, he emanates out into the physical world. But there's many layers of deity. And they called the whole gap between the supreme being and the physical world, all those emanations were, they called the, the pleroma, the fullness. So in their view, the, the, the one God 
kind of emanates out like the sun shines, and it creates this, that his fullness is on display. But it's found in all these different ranks of angels and all these different hierarchies. And Jesus was kind of, you know, somewhere in there in the Gnostic system. But Paul says, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. Forget all those angels. Forget all that emanation. Forget all of that. The whole fullness is found in him. Uh, don't go looking at for some angel to tell you something that you don't already know in Jesus Christ. Uh, don't have your attention on any angel. I get worried when people talk too much about angels, uh, you know, because it's all found in Christ. Unlike Gnosticism, we don't have the deity refracted in a bunch of different hierarchies and stuff. He himself came down here. The almighty God became a human being, fully God and fully human, and, and, and died in our place. So it's all found in him. Keep your eyes fixed on him. That's what the statement's saying. Don't go looking after fullness in any other place. Or even drawing your own conclusions. Jesus said, you know, Philip is like, okay, Jesus, you've been talking about the Father. Will you just show us the Father and then we'll be satisfied? And so then Jesus says, okay, I, Philip, have I been so long with you and yet you don't know me? If you see me, anyone who's seen the Father, if you've seen me, has seen the Father. Now think about that. In response to the question, show us the Father, Jesus goes, because the Son exercises the Father. No one's ever known God, really, until the Son, who is God in person, exorcised him, brought him out, drew out the meaning of that. Uh, and this is one of the ways that, you know, it's like anyone who tells you, and you get a lot of this these days, at least in the States, where there's a lot of folks who want to be nice about Jesus. Jesus is still pretty popular in America. Christians aren't <laughs> at all. Uh, but, but Jesus is, is, is really looked up to. And so there's this kind of a, it's kind of hip to say, oh, he's a great spiritual teacher. Uh, he was enlightened, you know, whatever. Well, folks, enlightened people don't go around saying, hey, if you see me, you see the Father. Why then do you say, show us the Father? Uh, that, that's not a good moral teacher, certainly not by first century Jewish standards. That's the kind of claim that can get you crucified. But Jesus was willing to do that all the time. He said stuff like this. Hey, guys, John, John 5, uh, what is it, 5, 23. Um, he says, I've come that all may honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. Uh, so what do you think of me if I came here? I said, you guys, I, I, look, you know, you've, you've had, you, you guys really been hospitable. I, you, I mean it. You've got a very hospitable church. You guys are very friendly. I love it because you're free of, you know, there's no pretense. Like in some religious atmospheres, you get like, but you guys, it's just like, just real people. I love this. It's just real. You guys, you guys are very, or there's no pretensions in you. I, lo I love it. Uh, but, you know, I want some real respect. <laughs> R-E-S-P-E-C-T. Here's how you should think of me. If you see me, you see the Father. Hey, just, we just honor me the way you'd honor God? Okay? Is that too much? Huh? Huh? Honor me the way you'd honor God. Well, that's what Jesus is saying. I've come that all may honor, because I'm, I'm him in the flesh. Uh, he's, he, your choice is, Either he's a crackpot or he's telling the truth. But this good moral teacher, whoever says that has not read the New Testament and taken it seriously. So then here's the, here's the real kicker. He is the life of all scripture and all scripture is about him. Now, this comes out in a lot of different ways. We sang about it a little bit earlier. Second um, Corinthians 1. Paul says, however many promises there are in God, they're all yea and amen in Christ. What he's saying here is, you know, the whole Old Testament is promised. It's always looking forward. And he's saying all of that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It all points to him. And it's all fulfilled in him. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 uh, is, and I, I didn't put that up there, but it says that um, you know, Jesus died and rose from the dead according to the scripture. 
And, and he's not specifying one scripture there. He's saying the whole thing is pointing in this direction. It all culminates here. You won't find one passage that predicts that, but the whole thing predicts it. It points to it. And then Jesus says this in, in, in John 5. He says, you, he's chiding the, the Pharisees here, and he goes, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. If you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote about me. Lock that in. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? So all the Bible study in the world, you can have it memorized in the original languages, know every geographical fact. You can have that. Wonderful. It won't do you a bit of good if it doesn't point you to the one who is the life of the whole thing. Scripture isn't an end in itself. It points to the one who is an end in and of himself, and that's Jesus Christ. And he is the life of Scripture. And the purpose of going to Scripture is to find that life. And Jesus says it all is about me. Now that presents an interesting challenge. How are those portraits of God commanding the slaughtering of babies about Jesus? Well, we'll have to sit on that for a while. But, but Jesus, I take it on Jesus' authority that it, it, it is. Uh, if he's my Lord, and I've got good reason to think he is, then I correct him. What I have to do is try to find a way to, to understand how all this points to Jesus. All those nasty stories, and, you know, selling virgin girls or keeping them as war booty. You kill the little boys and you kill all the non-virgins, but you keep the virgins. Numbers 31. And, and, and he says you can keep them for yourselves. That's in the Hebrew, keep them for yourselves, like for your enjoyment. Because that's what you do in the ancient Near East. You know, one of, the, one of the, the rewards of war is you get to keep the gals as your sex slaves. And they did that back then. How, does that, how is that about Jesus? How does that point to Jesus? I'm just making you hungry for tomorrow's message, that's all. <laughs> Someone won't be able to sleep tonight. How does it do it? I'm going to find out. Here's another passage. This is where Jesus shows up after the resurrection. And he says, how foolish you are. And these guys are all discouraged because they thought, man, we thought Jesus was the Messiah and he goes gets himself killed. But Jesus said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things? The Messiah had to be crucified and then enter his glory. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. And then he comes back to it about 20 verses later, as he meets with a whole group later on. He said, this is what I told you while I was still with you. But you guys weren't listening very well, ever. Everything must be fulfilled. Because, you know, throughout his whole ministry, Jesus was telling him, hey, I got to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to get I'm beaten. I'm going to be turned over. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. But when it happens, they're all shocked. Utterly <laughs> shocked. Which just shows you how strong our already thinking can be. Like, like we, we, we have our conclusions, and, and when we hear something that doesn't conform to our expectations, it's easy for it to go in one ear and out the other. You guys have raised teenagers, all right? You know what I'm talking about. Uh, it, it's, it's, yeah, it's, so, yeah, Jesus taught it, but, but they obviously didn't get it. Because they, they were, like everybody else, they were expecting a Messiah who would come and kick Roman butt and liberate Israel and restore it to its former glory. That's what the Messiah is supposed to do. Crack down on sinners, not fellowship with them for crying out loud. And, and crack down on the law, not, not replace with this grace thing that you're talking about. Uh, but Jesus, and, and you're supposed to side with the religious authorities, not declare war on them. He did everything wrong. And yet he did everything right. And all of it points to him. If you're reading it in the right way. But clearly, not all readings of the Bible are equal. The Pharisees probably outdid any of us in terms of sheer knowledge. 
And yet it was worthless because they, they couldn't see the forest through the trees. They didn't get the one who is the, the life of, of Scripture. So Graham Goldsworthy comments on this passage. He says, Jesus says the whole Old Testament, not merely a few selected texts, is about him. It's, it's it, the whole thing. The whole thing. And then Vern Poitras also comments on this passage. He says, Christ himself indicates that the Old Testament from beginning to end is about himself. The whole of the Old Testament as its central message, uh, the suffering and resurrection of Christ, that sense is missing a word or two. But you get the point. It's all pointing to Jesus' uh, death on the cross, which is then confirmed by his, his resurrection. So if it's all about him, then we have to read it all as being about him. So the last thing we should ever, ever do is put any other portrait of God in competition with him. Because every other portrait of God is about him. Now we maybe don't know how it's about him, but let's just take it on faith that it is about him, somehow, some way. So it can't tell us something different than him, because it's about him. Right. Got the logic of that? Yeah. And this is just the New Testament. If you're reading the Bible just as this flat book, you're reading it wrongly. <laughs> you, we have to approach Scripture knowing that it's all going to be about him, some way, somehow. And so we want to find Christ in all of Scripture. I love it. Luther was so good on this and so utterly inconsistent on his application of it. But he's always saying this. He goes, no other, I find nothing in Scripture other than Jesus Christ crucified. Uh, I, the, 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 the babe Jesus is, the, is wrapped in every verse of the Bible. You know, and you have to unravel the, the, the verse to find Jesus in it. But Jesus is on the inside of all that. I mean, he's so right on this. But if you read his theology, he, he never, for, for example, cared to reveal how Christ is wrapped up in the portrait of God saying, show no mercy, kill the babies. Uh, that would have been nice, Luther, if he would have done that. So he, in principle, he had everything right, but he just, his capacity to entertain contradictions is amazing. <laughs> it is. I, I've never, it, 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 he, you could call it great faith. He, he could believe contradictory things and he was okay with it. Uh, I, I think it's nonsense. Anyways, so Christ is the center of everything. Okay, just give you the small, this kind of like the highlights of, of the centrality of Christ in the New Testament. Okay, so lock that in. Whatever else we think about anything else in the Bible, it's all about him. It all points to him, especially to his suffering on the cross. So now I want to grade down a little further and talk about the cross and how the, the cross is central. Because here's the thing. What I, I discovered, like in the last 30 years, and really, it's been kind of increasing throughout the 20th century. Theologians have becoming more and more Christocentric, largely thanks to Karl Barth, um, but there's a lot of factors going on there. So Christocentric, that phrase, is really in. And, and people writing books on uh, a Christocentric approach to the Old Testament, a Christocentric theology, a Christocentric ecclesiology, a Christocentric pneumatology. And it's on and on and on. Christocentric. Helps sells books. But if you read... At least, at least for two-thirds of those books, I would say, and I read a lot of them, if you ask, okay, how would this book be different if it wasn't Christocentric? The answer is, not at all. It's like, what, what is distinctly, like, what difference did your Christocentric approach really make here? It's like a principle without any teeth. Like, I would think a Christocentric interpretation of, let's say, the genocidal portrait of God that we'd be looking at, it ought to be like a little different than a non-Christocentric interpretation. Otherwise, why call it Christocentric? In other words, it's got to have some teeth. It's got to make some difference. And part of the problem here is that Jesus' life was very varied and did a lot of different things. And depending on what you want to focus on, 
or what you want to start with, or what you want to centralize, can give you a very different interpretation of what Jesus was about. You follow me on this? So, so for example, if you really are invested on defending um, the warrior God of the Old Testament, and that, that, that those portraits are just as accurate as the one in Jesus. And you want to try to reconcile those. This is what Paul Copen does in his book, Is God a Moral Monster? Uh, well, he, you know, he, he goes to the, the temple cleansing. And John chapter 2, and he says, look at Jesus here overturned tables. And, and, and he, he, he got a whip. And he, he, he got violent. And so if Jesus was violent in the temple, we shouldn't have trouble accepting that God could wipe out all the Canaanites. Now, if you're thinking to yourself, well, that's kind of a jump, isn't it? Uh, you're right. That's, okay. Plus, there's nothing in the temple incident that suggests Jesus was at all violent. It, that, that's just projected into it. It says Jesus, he wanted to overturn the tables and get the animals out because there's an unjust system going on and all that. So he makes a whip. But it doesn't say he used it on the animals, let alone on people. It says he, he drove out the animals. What you do with a whip? I mean, whips have always been used in all cultures to create, to control animal behavior, to create stampede. You crack the whip, you startle the animals, and they go in the direction you want them to go. Just keep cracking that whip. That's what he was doing. He's creating a stampede. Doesn't say he was violent towards animals, let alone towards humans. But if you really want to find something in Jesus that you can use to justify, uh, you know, you're relying on this Old Testament violent passage, well, that's the best you can do. So, so where you start um, determines everything. Well, I am proposing that Jesus, the New Testament itself gives us a way of interpreting Jesus. There's, there's a central through line going throughout Jesus' ministry, and it's, it culminates on the cross. Now, hear me on this, okay? When, when, I, when I talk for, about the cross from now on, or the crucified Christ, I'm not thinking of the cross as distinct from his teaching and his ministry and his life. There's an old Protestant tradition of separating the cross from everything else. And, and even kind of reducing salvation down to this transaction on the cross to the point where... If Jesus had died at the age of two, it would have been the same effect. The important thing is that he died for our sins. And so everything else was sort of superfluous. His life, his teachings, all that. Which is nice, convenient at least, because that means you can kind of ignore the life. The important thing is that you believe that he died for your sins, and you're good to go to heaven. You got your fire insurance, get out of jail for free card. Boom, you're done. And now we've got this, this Christendom greatly reduced contract version of salvation that leads sanctification to be optional. How you actually live doesn't matter, as long as you believe these true propositions. It's all because they separate the cross from everything else. What I argue is that the cross is like the through line of everything else Jesus was about. It, it, it connects everything. Um, what he was most fundamentally about is putting on display his father's character and starting inaugurating a movement that would be characterized by that character, that would put the father's self-sacrificial love on display. And so the cross culminates... It sums up everything that, that Jesus was about. And so we, we need to understand Jesus' life is always focused on the cross. So I, I, I want to show how this comes out of the New Testament, and then we'll open it up for questions. About 15 more minutes, and then we'll open it up. So the cross is the through line of Jesus' life and ministry. So here's five pieces of, of, of evidence for this. Number one, the Gospels are from start to finish focused on the crucifixion. Uh, Martin Kaler was this famous New Testament scholar in the 19th century, and he said the Gospels are passion narratives with extended introductions. The passion is the main thing. And by passion, that just has to deal with Jesus' arrest and trial and crucifixion. That's, that's his passion, his suffering. So the Gospels themselves are all oriented 
towards uh, Jerusalem. That, that, that's, that's the focus there. That already tells you that the cross is the center of what these Gospels are about. The resurrection, of course, shows that the cross uh, was victorious and that, that this was divine. This wasn't some random criminal here. So we'd never know about his death if it wasn't for the resurrection. Resurrection isn't, follow this, the resurrection isn't like now the cross way of life is being done away with. The resurrection is God's proclamation that this way of living is victorious. Living with the cross. Living in self-sacrificial love. That's why we're told to follow his example. Now what happened, the church was doing that really good for the first three centuries. But then we inherit all this power and wealth from the Roman government and get asked to help run the thing. And we say, yay, uh, you know, can end our persecution. And now the resurrection got reinterpreted as being the, like, Jesus had to suffer in order to be victorious. But now we get the victory without suffering. So the, the, the resurrection replaces the crucifixion when, in fact, in the New Testament, the resurrection is the victory of the crucifixion. That's why when Paul talks about the empowerment of God, it's, it's, it's the, the power to endure suffering. And he rejoices that he gets to do it. It's the same spirit that was in Christ is in him, and so it leads him to live the sacrificial life. So the resurrection is the victory of, of, of this. But it's all oriented towards the cross. Secondly, Paul equates the gospel with the message of the cross. He uses the terms interchangeably. To say the gospel or to say the cross is the same thing. And, and he'll, he'll sometimes just say the message of the cross and mean by that the whole gospel. Because in his view, it's all found in the cross. It, 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 it is the gospel. Uh, at one point in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, I've resolved to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I, I, I intentionally, he's saying, don't want to know anything about you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now think about the implications of this. For Paul to say that presupposes that all you really need to know about anybody is Jesus Christ and him crucified. If I know Jesus Christ and him crucified, I've got the gospel there, and I know everything I need to know about God, and I know everything I need to know about you. What I know about you is that you're a sinner, and Jesus had to die for you, so you must be pretty serious. But uh, I also know that, that he thought you were worth dying for. And, and uh, that his death has changed everything. I'll preach about that on Sunday morning. And so, so I, I, I always tell people, if, unless someone's invited you in on their life and has asked you to help them live out this kingdom walk, and we all need people like this, people who are on the inside of my story, and they know me well enough to know if they're not going well, or everyone else might assume that it is going well, but I need people on the inside. And they get permission to speak into my life. Because I've given them permission, and I speak into their life. But if you don't have that kind of arrangement with somebody, then you're, what I teach at Woodland Hills Church is that you're allowed one opinion of them. And that is that they were worth Jesus dying for. And your most fundamental job as a kingdom person is to agree with God on that and to reflect that agreement by how you think about them and how you speak to them and how you interact with them, how you treat them, uh, to just show that they have unsurpassable worth. That's, that, that's our call right there, folks. Um, and and so, so it just shows you that all things, I mean, it's all found in Jesus Christ. Jurgen Moltmann said this. He's a famous theologian that I happen to like a lot. Uh, and he says that the, the, all the mysteries of Christian theology are unlocked by the cross. And I have come to believe that, that is true. I think it's all, uh, why? Because all the wisdom and all the knowledge of God is found in Jesus and Jesus' ministry is all focused on the cross. It's centered on the cross. Third, as I mentioned earlier, in John, Jesus says he glorifies, it should be glorifies, not glory. He glorifies the Father when he's crucified. 
He's always putting on display the Father. If you see me, if you see the Father. That was true when he was a little baby. That was true all throughout his life. But you don't see it as unambiguously when he's a baby, because as a baby, he's kind of like every other baby. I don't know when people start sinning, but that's when he started being a little different. Up to that point, he pooped his pants like everybody else. And, but, but So you don't see the distinctness of the Father there. But when he's crucified, you see he glorifies the Father. This is the clearest glimpse you're getting of what God is really like. It's the full revelation of God. The final thing, oh, uh, not the final, fourth thing, the cross revolutionized Paul's conception of God. Now listen to this. This Sometimes we hear scripture so much that we, we, we lose, we, we fail to notice its edginess and how radical it is. But it's, so it's good to try to hear it like you've never heard it before. Pretend like you've never heard this before. Maybe you haven't. Maybe it was the first time. For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. We proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and Christ is the wisdom of God. The cross is the power and the wisdom of God. Now think about this. That crucified criminal, killed by the Romans, uh, hanging on that cross, mocked and beaten, scourged, dying with other criminals, that's the power of God. In other words, when, when, when the omnipotent God decides to put on display his omnipotent bicep, it looks like him letting himself be crucified, tortured and crucified by enemies. That's the power of God. And that's the wisdom of God. It looks like the stupidest thing. What kind of omnipotent God gets himself crucified as a demonstration of his omnipotence? Well, a God whose very essence is other-oriented love. That's who. It's a God who, who, whose power is his willingness to give himself away on behalf of others. Uh, see, the, the way, one of the ways I know that that's divine revelation is this. We have got a whole history of religions, you know, as far back as you want. We know very well what it looks like for human beings to create gods. We've been doing it for thousands upon thousands upon thousands of years. We make God after our own image. Um, and since humans have always lusted for the power to protect ourselves at the very least, uh, to kill our enemies, uh, you know, to, to, to impose our will on others. We've always lusted after that power. And so we've, of course, always assumed that the gods are defined by that kind of power. They've got what we want. They just have more of it. And so then what religion's all about is we have to figure out ways that, that they'll use their superior power on our behalf. And so it's like a quid pro quo arrangement. If we sacrifice our firstborn children, the gods will help us kill our enemies, and that will be good for in the long run. And so, you know, the gods are very demanding, so they make these sacrifices, but it's a quid pro quo, it's a bargaining kind of thing. But we've defined power as, this, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger, brute power, kill power, get your weight power, defend yourself power, force power, coercive power. Paul comes up and says, no, the real power of God is his willingness to be crucified out of love for others. No human being would ever, ever say that. That's the craziest thing. That's too crazy not to be true. <laughs> you know, it's like, so the, for Paul, the cross completely redefined God. He's defining God's power and God's wisdom on the basis of the cross. And I think it's just so brilliant because as a matter of fact, 
the power of the cross, the power of self-sacrificial love, the power of laying yourself down for others, it is the most powerful force in the universe. Yeah. All the nuclear weapons in the world can't turn an enemy into a friend. You can't make someone love you. You can make them say, I love you. You can make them act like they love you because they'll be so afraid they'll, they'll do it. But you can't make them actually love you. In fact, the more you try to get a person to love you by using coercive force, the more you ensure that they'll never love you. So God uses this kind of power because this is the kind of power that's consistent with love. It's the power, not of coercion, but of, of winning people over by your character. It's the strongest power in the universe. And it is, he promises, victorious. It doesn't always look victorious. Only on Easter will we see how this is the kind of power that really changed the world. But uh, it's not power over people that, that, that is the kingdom. It's power under people because that's what God's using here. The power to, come, to, lay, to sacrifice on behalf of another in order to restore them and to reconcile them. It's just gorgeous. But it shows you how central the cross is to this. It wasn't just the ministry of Jesus in general, but it, it's the ministry of Jesus that's summed up on the cross. And, 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 and so when, we, when you look at his ministry, it all has this cross-like flavor to it. He's always talking about laying down your life. He's always talking about the first shall be last, the last shall be first. But all that is just crystallized on the cross. And then finally, I hope you have your questions ready. But the cross defines the kind of love that God is. Um, so, as Brexy mentioned earlier, God is love. God is love, 1 John 4, 8. Now, the thing is, that doesn't help much until you define what love is. Because love can mean anything you want, right? In fact, it pretty much means whatever anyone wants. You know, it, one of the things the church had to get around is, is you know, how are we going to justify killing our enemies when Jesus says not to do that? We're supposed to love our enemies. And so St. Augustine, who was the cleverest theologian uh, in all of history, uh, for the worse, because uh, he used that cleverness in, for all the wrong ends, not all the wrong, but a lot of wrong ends. But he, he, he came up with this, he, he was the theologian that most got, got Christian theology to be consistent with empire running. And it was no small task. But uh, um, uh, he says, well, here's the thing. Love, love is an inner disposition that does not have any necessary behavioral entailments. So you can love your enemy and burn them alive at the stake, which he recommended doing. And you're doing it in the name of love. Um, and that's been kind of how the church has viewed this. It's an inner disposition. So as long as you have a warm fuzzy or something, I don't know, but you can kill it. You can do anything and still be okay with saying I'm obeying Jesus when he says love your enemies. Trouble is Jesus doesn't leave that out, opening. He says love your enemies, bless those who persecute you, do good to those who despitefully use you, that you may be children of the Father in heaven. Um, do good. That means there are behavioral implications of this. And whatever else the behavioral implications are, I don't think setting people on fire is, is one of them. I, it's, no, to love means you do good to them. You are looking for their, their, their you, you want to bless them. You want to enhance their life. Burning them alive doesn't really do that. So what John does, we need a definition of love. Fortunately, the Bible gives us the clearest definition you could possibly get by not giving us a definition. It points us, rather, to an event, to a person. And so in, in 1 John 3.16, John says, here's how we know what love is, what agape is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, so also we should lay down our life for one another. That's what love is. So do the math. God is love, and love looks like the cross. God is 
cross-like love. God is self-sacrificial love. God is other-oriented love. God is non-violent love. God is bless your enemy love. God is turn the other cheek love. God is that to the core of his being, his, his very hypostasis. Now, think about, and here's why. There's a logic to this. It's not just that, hey, I got some five sets of verses that line this up. But follow this. Why is the cross the definitive revelation of God? And here's why. God became a human being in Jesus Christ, and that already was crossing an infinite distance. He set aside his divine privileges, Philippians 2, all of his advantages. He emptied himself and made himself nothing, took on uh, the form of a servant. That already is, is, is a massive stepping down. But on the cross, God goes even further. Uh, according to 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, it says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. On the cross, and there's a lot of mystery to this, but just take it on faith. On the cross, in some sense, God became our sin. The all-holy God became our sin. Which means he went to the opposite, he experienced the opposite of himself. And see, this is why the cross has to be the most excruciating thing ever imaginable, because you experience pain to the degree that you're experiencing something unnatural. If someone's holding your breath, you, you, that, that's experiences pain because it's natural for you to breathe. Or if you get an opening in your body where there's not supposed to be an opening, that hurts because it, it, it's not natural. Whenever we have something that's against our nature, it hurts. What would it be like for the all-holy God to experience the inside of sin? Every sin ever created, he, like he absorbs it all within himself. He became our sin. And then, Paul says in Galatians 3.3, 3, he became our curse. Because with sin comes a curse. Sin is inherently alienating from God. It sets us apart from God. It causes estrangement. It's, it, it is its own punishment. It separates us from God. And, and so Jesus not only became our sin, but he became our curse. He experienced all of the estrangement, alienation from God that the sin of the world produces. So the perfectly united triune God now experiences separation from himself. That's why Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's on the inside of, this, of our estrangement, on the inside of our sin. He's experiencing the opposite of himself. It must have been the, we, we can't, you know, one time I was driving through a town in Cambodia. I was on a medical missions trip. And they had a town there that was, uh, given over to uh, this sex trafficking, little kids. And, and we were right, working right next to this village, and the government at this point was just looking the other way. And at one point, we were talking about this problem in Cambodia, and, and uh, one of, the, one of the, the folks there, we were ministering to Vietnamese in Cambodia, and Cambodia is already a third world country and, and in terrible poverty, but these Vietnamese... They're illegal immigrants in this rural country, and so they're at the bottom of every pecking order you can imagine. And it was just, they lived in the squalor conditions off the Mekong River, and it was just terrible. We'd go there and do medical work and, you know, spend a week. But this one Cambodian asked me, would you like to drive through there? And I, I yeah, I, in a gross kind of way, I, I, I feel like I want to take that in. I, I, I can't imagine this. So I get in the back, everyone there just drives mopeds. No one drives cars. It's all mopeds. It's crazy. Five people on a moped. I'm not kidding. It, it, it's, and there's no traffic lights or anything. They just kind of flow. But it works. Better than our system with traffic lights. Anyways, 
So he drives me down to this town, and I'm sitting in the back of this moped, a Western guy, and so you're going through this relatively impoverished town, but you're seeing Lexus cars and a Porsche and, you know, Mercedes. Rich businessmen come in from around the world to have sex with these kids. And as I'm, it's not night, so at nighttime they come out. During the day they keep them indoors, but the Johns are out on the driveway. And as we're driving, they think I'm there for kids. And they start trying to flag me in. One guy even had some photos. And all of a sudden, it occurred to me, they, they think I could be a pedophile. That I would actually be wanting to have... And I entered in the grossness of that. And I almost wanted to scream, no, I'm not here for that. You know, but but I, 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 I just experienced it. Like The guy who drove that car was just like this. What would it be like to be a guy planning on this, uh, going to the house, paying the money to have sex with this little kid. And I, I, I could get on the inside of that a little bit. I've never really gotten on the inside. What would it be like, can you enter the world of a person who's got that kind of perverse, demented, twisted, sick mindset? But I, I, I could just enter a little bit, and I got nauseous. I felt sick. Like, just like I'm playing the role of a pedophile here. Well, see, on the cross, God got completely on the inside of every sin, of every sick and twisted and demented and terrible and nightmares thing that's ever been done to anybody. And on the inside of what it is to have that done to you, he's on the inside of, he got on the inside of our hell. So he, he, he took on our humanity, but then took on our sin and took on our curse, which means he just dove into our hell. Um, and see, by experiencing the opposite of himself, his own antithesis, the perfectly united God now experiencing separation out of love for us. And the perfectly holy God now experiencing sin. God went to the furthest extreme God could have possibly have gone. In all eternity, he couldn't go a centimeter further than he went on our behalf. What more could God do other than becoming our sin, becoming our curse? And this is, and see the unsurpassable distance that he was willing to cross on our behalf reveals the infinite perfection of the love that he is. God is love, and love is defined by the cross. Uh, if, you, if you measure a love story uh, by the amount that a lover is willing to sacrifice for the beloved over against how undeserving the beloved is, okay, those are a story that does that's way more interesting than a story where just two people fall in love. No, when there's a distance that's crossed, a king who sacrifices everything to marry this peasant lady, that's a much greater love story because he was willing to sacrifice so much. Well, see, by that criteria, this story is not only the greatest love story ever told, it's the greatest love story that could have ever conceivably be told. Because yeah. you can never tell a story about one greater who's willing to do more for people who didn't deserve it, who wanted nothing more to be uh, done with him. But for a bride who just was disgusted with him, he was willing to go to the furthest extreme possible. And so this is why, it, when, when you look at the cross, it's a, the revelation of God for you not because of what you see on the surface. And I'll talk about this more tomorrow too. But it's that you believe, the message of the cross is that God Almighty was willing to step into this. This gross-looking, sin-mirroring surface. This guilty, crucified criminal, which in first century terms means you're God-forsaken. Anyone who hangs on, on a tree is God-forsaken. You look through that and you see the infinite distance that God crossed to become that. And that's what reveals God to you. That's the revelation of God. And that's a revelation of a God of unsurpassable love. Unsurpassable other-oriented love. It's all found on the cross. And so this is why I, 
I, I, I don't just say that we should be have Christ-centered, but we should be crucified Christ-centered, centered on the cross. It is the key to what God is like. God is like this in his own being. In some way, among the three persons of the Trinity, there's a total pouring outness. They're totally given over to one another. God's other-oriented even within God's self. God prefers you before me even within God's self. Uh, it, in, in the church tradition, they call this the perichoresis of the three persons. Perichoresis is the word that means pouring out or indwelling. The three persons totally dwell within one another because they're perfect love, and love is about giving yourself away for the sake of another. So God is that within himself, and then he creates to invite others in on that, on that perichoresis, on that dance. And what we have to look forward to is someday we're going to be doing that 24-7, nonstop, no breaks, no pauses in the action. Can't wait for that. Amen?